0: Heads up, this episode contains adult themes, explicit language, and, worst of all, spoilers. Let me take you back to November 1999. My first trip to the Netherlands. At the time, I didn't know it was going to be one of my favorite places. I just had a friend who'd moved there, to the city of Amsterdam. And pretty much all I'd heard about Amsterdam is what most 20 somethings had heard about Amsterdam back in 99 legal weed and prostitution. I imagined streets littered with hash pipes and condoms, pimps in alleys, steaming sewers basically, the movie Taxi Driver. That's what I was imagining. And as a wannabe radio journalist, I figured I should record that experience. What I found was a city that was adorable. There were centuries-old cafés where people sipped foamy beers out of tiny glasses. Thin old buildings where locals lived in small, neat apartments. Outdoor markets with accordionists. Selling damn good chocolate. It was a city with more bikes than people, where cyclists like this guy ruled the cobblestone streets. Yeah, it keeps you fit, uh, (laughs) of course. And yeah, it's fun. In the red light district, where you found most of the weed and sex workers, even that was bisected by lovely canals, with actual swans in them. Over the years, I went back and back and back. I filed stories about the place for NPR, wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal repeatedly, and I came to see Dutch people as kind of like those swans. The red light district was mostly full of tourists. The natives were these composed creatures okay with having a designated place where others could freak out while they mainly glided by, unfazed, living their seemingly modest, low-key lives. Then I saw the 1973 Dutch film Turkish Delight, which starts like a horror movie. The hero fantasizing about committing a bloody double murder. Then we follow him as he has random sex with strangers. Starts a little riot in a restaurant. Gets picked up hitchhiking by a beautiful girl. Pulls over with her and has more sex. After which back on the road, they accidentally spin out. And that's just the first 20 minutes. It's an insane whiplash of joy, death, sex, lots of sex farce, melodrama, social satire, rage, and tragic romance. And the low-key Dutch loved it so much, 47 years later, it's still one of the biggest selling box office hits in the history of the country. Clearly, I had a lot to learn about that country. I am arts and travel reporter Rico Galliano, and from the curated streaming service Mubi, welcome to the Movie podcast. Movie showcases beautiful, a lot of times mind-blowing movies from around the globe. On this new show, we're going to tell you the stories behind those films and any others with stories worth telling. This is the first season. We're calling it Lost in Translation, and on every episode, we're going to pick a film that was a gigantic cultural phenomenon in just one country. And then we're gonna dig into that country's history, its pop culture and the movie itself to find out why. Why did this film fascinate so many people in this one place at this one time? What does it say about the country? And what kind of mark did the movie turn around and leave on the country? The goal is when we're done and you watch these films, which I dearly hope you do, maybe these movies and these places will seem a little closer to home. So let's do this. First up, The Netherlands and Turkish Delight. You have at least heard of this thing if you're a fan of director Paul Verhoeven or his star record, Hauer. It was the first major movie for both of them. But outside the Netherlands, that's it. That's mainly what it's known for, launching those guys' careers. Inside the Netherlands, it was named the best Dutch film of the 20th century. When it came out, a quarter of the population stood in line to see it. So to find out more about it, I went to the source. We are gonna speak with Dutch film scholars, Dutch critics, and Verhoeven himself and the makers of this film about how it was made and the very specific era it came from.
1: I don't think it can ever be made again. We will never experience the freedom that we had then to make the film. The whole society has changed.
0: So stow away the wooden clogs and any other stereotypes while you're at it because we're about to translate Turkish Delight. So before we get to the movie, Turkish Delight, first, you got to understand the book it's based on and the Netherlands of the 1960s when it was written and the guy who wrote it, an angry young man. Well, at that point, actually, he was an angry 40-something-year-old man named Jan Volkers.
2: Jan Volkers was well-loved. He was a very, very, very popular man throughout his life in the Netherlands. Always someone who kicked against the pricks, always a rebellious figure, really. That's Sam Garrett. For 40
0: years, he has lived in Holland, translating Dutch books into English, including some of Volker's books.
2: Volker started off as a visual artist. He quickly became quite famous for sculptures, for works that were hanging in public spaces, was recognized as a visual artist. And at the same time, his autobiographical prose struck a chord. Yeah, the Holland Volker started off writing about was not a land
0: of weed shops. Like a lot of Dutchmen of his day, his parents were strict, reformed Calvinists. His small town of Osteist was provincial and conservative. And his early novels were basically
2: about how much he hated all the above. And an awful lot of Dutch people could relate to that. And we're all too pleased to see someone reacting to that sort of stifling atmosphere that they themselves knew through their home lives or their parents' home lives. And some folks who could really relate to Volkers
0: were a group of young Dutch people who called themselves provos. Short for provoceren, to provoke. It was a movement of Bohemians, activists, and anarchists, one of Holland's first countercultures, and they were hell-bent on getting Dutch people to loosen up society and make it freer and cooler, starting in the capital city of Amsterdam. That's why I have such good memories of
3: Amsterdam at the time, because it was a very influential movement and ultimately
0: it broke a lot of laws and it broke a lot of rules. That is Jan de Bont. He'd go on to direct American blockbusters like Speed and Twister. But in the mid-60s, he was a budding cinematographer, just graduated from the Netherlands' new film academy in Amsterdam.
3: There was a movement of the provost that were trying to free everything in Amsterdam. For instance, they made the bicycles free. They bought a whole bunch of bicycles, painted them up white and everybody could use them over the whole city. So they wanted to make
0: transportation free for everyone. You didn't have to own a bike. Provosts were also partial to surreal acts of protest. In 1966, when the Dutch Princess Beatrix announced her engagement to a German, who not long before had been a member of the Hitler Youth, the Provost ruined the wedding ceremony. First by spreading crazy rumors, like that they were going to lace Amsterdam's water supply with LSD that day. The city called in 25,000 troops to guard the wedding parade.
4: From town hall, the carriage goes to West Church for the religious ceremony, and smoke bombs explode along the route. Police attribute the display to about 1,000 youngsters.
0: Yeah, that was the provost. They disbanded the next year, but a lot of their revolutionary ideas had caught on. By 69, social change was everywhere in Dutch cities, and that's when Volkers loved a bomb of his own in the form of his fifth novel, A salute to the defiant lives of provocative young bohemians and a middle finger aimed at the old Holland, all wrapped up in a love story. He called it Turkish Delight. In Dutch, it's called Turks Again, Sam Garrett. He did the English translation.
2: Based to a certain extent on his life, loosely on his life. A quick synopsis of it, really, is boy meets girl, um, Olga. Her name is Olga. They fall in love the minute they lay eyes on each other, but her mother does everything in her power to drive a wedge between them. The mom is bourgeois society. Fake,
0: status-obsessed, disdainful of anything wild. The couple reject everything she stands for, reveling in art, sex, and the animal side of life. But then... Olga seems to give in to her mom. The relationship dissolves in infidelity.
2: And our protagonist's heart is broken. He is an embittered man who seeks comfort in fleeting sexual relationships and really in in despair, trying to win her back, not succeeding. And finally, spoiler alert, Olga becomes fatally ill and dies. And
0: all the while, that unnamed protagonist, who's a sculptor, just like Volker's, narrates every detail of the relationship, the sex, their bodily fluids, his grief, her death,
2: in unflinching first-person detail. No apologies, no fear. Very staccato, a lot of street language. Volkers creates the impression that he is just sitting down and telling you this story, boom, right in your face. And that was, that was new. The writer had nailed the anti-establishment zeitgeist. And while the religious
0: right hated it, and some feminists did too, Jan de Bant remembers Turkish Delight became a Dutch sensation.
3: Personally, when I read the book, I, it kind of made me smile. I have to say, I remember sm- laughing through it because it was so wild. And I thought, oh my God, this, they're going to forbid this book from being published, or so, you know, it's never going to be accepted. And of course, what happened, because it was so shocking, everybody wanted to read it. Both sides. So it was a gigantic hit. It became the most successful book, I think, in the history of Holland.
1: When I read the book for the first time, I was devastated. I just, I cried. I couldn't believe such a, you know, tragic love story.
0: Monique van de Ven was 18 years old at the time, an aspiring actress.
1: You know, I came from a very open-minded family and we could talk about it. But a lot of people in Holland at that time didn't dare to tell people that they would read the book or you know they would go sneakily into a library.
0: It was a, even though I know that it was extremely popular and a big hit, people still felt like they needed to kind of sneak around with it.
1: Oh, absolutely. Like parents would wrap it, you know, that people wouldn't recognize that they were reading the book. Yeah, it was it was something. But I think uh, Jan Wolkers really opened a lot of windows, you know, there was a lot of fresh air coming in into Holland.
0: For sure, Turkish Delight touched many people in the Netherlands. It still does. It's on the reading list in Dutch high schools. But it affected Van de Ven and Jan de Bont more than most, thanks to a guy who'd bring them all together to make the movie version.
2: Uh, we are
4: talking of, about Turkish Delight, isn't it, or not? Yes. man, what is
0: it? Uh, Turkish Delight.
4: Okay, yeah, yeah I, I thought so.
0: This winter, in the middle of Holland's COVID lockdown, I talked to him by phone. Anyhow,
4: my name is Paul Verhoeven, and I'm the director of a Dutch film called Turkish Delight.
0: Paul Verhoeven had just one film under his belt at the time, a risque comedy called Business is Business, also based on a book, and which also dealt with sexually adventurous outsiders who didn't give a damn about social norms. In this case, they were sex workers. One of whom chows down on a chocolate bar in the middle of an opera recital. Her date tells her she should behave. To which she says, I wipe my ass with your behaving. And she stalks out. (laughs) Business is Business was produced by a guy named Rob Hauer, who apparently thought it would make sense for his next film with Verhoeven to be an adaptation of another provocative novel that took anti-establishment attitude to a whole new level. He gave the director a copy of Turkish Delight, and Verhoeven fell in love with it, he says, for pretty straightforward reasons.
4: Because it's interesting. It's true. Because there's truth there. It's not basic things that were invented. The sexuality that he describes is not something uh, that's a fantasy. It's all based on reality. It's very, very autobiographical. And so these things happened that way. And basically what's more beautiful than getting
0: an honest tale? But Jan de Bond, who shot Business is Business for Paul, says the director might have seen his own biography in Turkish Delight.
3: Paul Verhoeven, is, he is from a Reformed background, and this is his coming out of and his standing up towards that old-fashioned, restricted movement in sexuality. Because treating sexuality as something so normal, so common, so natural, that was unheard of, you know. How could you do those things and be shameless about it and, and accept it as it is, and, and not only that, enjoy it as it is?
4: So it was an adventure. I think every, all the movies I made in my life, it was always curiosity. Like, well, that's interesting. Let's see if we can make it to a good movie.
0: To adapt Volker's book, Verhoeven signed on his core team from Business is Business. De Bont would shoot it. Screenwriter Gerard Soteman wrote the script, giving the narrator a name, Eric. Now they just needed a couple of actors as carefree, as shameless, in a way, as the characters.
4: I cut ten years ago.
0: Back then, Rutger Hauer was known for a single starring role, the title character on a Dutch TV show called Floris. It was aimed at little kids, and it was set in a milieu about as far removed as possible from 1970s Bohemia, medieval Holland, circa 1540 AD. He played a gallant knight, Verhoeven actually directed him in the series, and his takeaway was that Rutger was pretty much the last guy he would ever cast as a brooding, sex-obsessed artist.
4: I could not see in him the character of the book. No. I thought basically in the series he is, a, let's say, a man with a sword who is a little bit simplistic, naive, and whatever, and a bit dumb. And I thought that was Rutger.
0: Producer Rob Hauer, on the other hand, thought Rutger was good-looking. And it didn't hurt that, thanks to Flores, he was also kind of popular.
4: And I said, yeah, but he cannot act that. And the producer insisted, insisted several times to at least do an audition with Rutger. And I didn't want to do that either, you know. I wanted other people. I tried 10, 20 other young Dutch actors. Finally, the producer convinced me. And in 20 minutes in the audition, it was like the switch of a moment. It was clear that the protagonist of the of the novel
0: should be Rutger Hauer. It wasn't just Hauer's acting that blew him away. It was also his chemistry, with now 19-year-old Monique van de Ven. Still in acting school, without a credit to her name, she remembers being called in to help screen test the male actors.
1: So there was like no pressure on me. It was, you know,
0: I just had to play
1: the, the part of Olga. And I said, oh, sure, sure, sure. And Jan de Bond uh, was a cameraman, and he was shooting it on film. And more and more, I saw him, you know, shooting me as well. And afterwards, I thought, oh. And a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call. And uh, this is the assistant of Rob Hauer. He's a producer. And she said, could I come to Amsterdam at the Hotel America to uh, sign... My contract. I said, sign my contract? Oh, for which part? And she's like, you know, come on. Olga, of course. And I'm, what?
0: They never told you that you were, that's who they were considering you for?
1: No, no, no. (laughs) Paul told me later, you know, they were all coming together, looking at the footage, and they couldn't believe it. And somebody, I don't know, maybe it was Jan Wolkers or uh, Jan de Bond or Paul, I don't know, Somebody said, why don't you take her?
0: Yeah, uh, Jan de by the way, we've interviewed him. He says the latter. He says it was him. Oh, sure. Sure, he (laughs) says. I should probably note, Monique and Jan de later got married, and many years after that, amicably divorced.
1: (laughs) That's fun. Well, thank you, Jan. You made my career.
0: It was
3: like a a revelation. She was so natural, and she was so perfect, and, and so inexperienced. There was no acting
0: involved. And that is always the best if you cannot see the acting. In a way, that became the ethos of the whole production. Volker's book felt wild, uninhibited, and it was kind of all about being authentic, true to yourself at any cost. So everything about the movie had to be too, starting with the shooting style. It
3: wasn't ever about beautiful images. It was about basically documenting a lifestyle, a new lifestyle that was exciting because of its freedom, so the camera had to be free as well. The whole movie basically was filmed handheld, which was at the time extremely difficult because those cameras weigh really a ton.
4: You have to realize that the, that the film was made in a very loose style, you know, it was not uh, rehearsing, rehearsing, and then this and that, no, we do, it was more like, let's do the scene. It was not storyboarded, in, not even in my head. We do shot it, basically, as I felt it.
0: Or in some cases, like the actors felt it. There's a scene that would become iconic in Holland. While jazz great Toots Thielmans whistles away on the soundtrack, Eric joyfully drives Olga through Amsterdam on his bike, weaving through traffic and running cars off the road. Most of that was improvised and by the way, shot without a permit.
4: Basically, that was us hiding behind our cars with our camera and then giving a sign to Rutger and have him maneuver through the traffic that was not organized in any way. He just went through the traffic and he did that in a very nonchalant and uh, superhero kind of way.
0: Auer also improvised the scene's punchline when he drove the bike at top speed straight through the open front door of a random liquor joint.
3: It just happened to be there and Rutger decided, he's gonna drive right into the store, liquor store. And you can see the reaction of the people
1: that are walking in front of the door and Rutger just drives right through and these people are like, oh my God! Yeah, yeah! Yeah, and and the liquor store guy, you know, was like, what the hell are you doing in my store
3: with a bike? But it was, the scene itself was very funny. And as soon as we were done, we got the hell out of there.
0: Verhoeven pulled off these public stunts by keeping the crew small, mobile, and tightly knit. Which, turns out, also helped during the, well, more private scenes, set in Eric's apartment, which were shot in an atmosphere that would be just unimaginable on a modern movie set.
1: We had this beautiful studio, artist studio, uh, in Amsterdam, and it became our house. I mean, you know, a house for everybody, the whole crew and the cast, and... We were always there, and it was like, complete freedom. You know, I didn't put on a bathrobe between takes, you know. No, I was just walking there. I mean, Running I was... around
0: naked, seriously? Oh,
1: easily, you know. But, but nobody looked at it, or nobody thought it was weird. You know, I was very uninhibited. You know, all of Amsterdam was very free and open, and there were, you know, hardly any taboos. I mean coming out of this uh, bourgeois morale, we didn't want that anymore. And um, (laughs) we just wanted to to be free. And it was exactly the right timing. You know, It has a lot to do with the timing.
0: Even so, when the film was finished, no one quite knew what audiences would make of Turkish Delight. By 73, there'd already been serious Dutch films depicting sex. But it
3: it was very unusual to see it approached in a non-staged way. And this movie feels like nothing is staged. It all feels like it just happened to happen
0: and we happened to film it. Also, yeah, Volker's novel had been a hit, but it was one thing to read his blunt descriptions of sex, defecation, and death. To see it on screen seemed like a different animal.
4: It was, let's say, we were not sure that it would be accepted. I remember uh, even days before the premiere of the movie, I was talking to my editor and uh, we were both thinking, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the people are going to say.
0: So when the film finally opened, really nothing could have prepared them for the reaction. Turkish delight explodes on the scene. Coming up in just a minute. Stay with us. Mubi is a curated streaming service, production company and film distributor. A place to discover, discuss and celebrate beautiful cinema. Every day Mubi premieres a new film, each one thoughtfully handpicked by our team of curators. From brand new work by emerging filmmakers to masterpieces by cinema's greatest icons, there is always something new to uncover on this platform. And you should know that alongside every episode of this podcast, our online film magazine Notebook will publish a complimentary piece as part of a series called Mubi Podcast Expanded. This week, Dutch film critic Dana Linsen builds on her commentary that you're going to hear later in this episode, sharing her personal connection to Turkish delight and diving deep into ideas of toxic love and Dutch culture. So finish this episode, then check out her piece on the notebook at Mubi.com notebook. And of course, to stream the best of cinema, simply head over to Mubi.com to start watching. All right, so the year is 1973, Turkish delight is about to come out, and Amsterdam, with its liberal attitudes and drug policies, has become the center of the counterculture universe. This is a Dutch public TV news story from the era. In it, a reporter wanders a Pan Am departure gate in New York City packed with hundreds of quote unquote hippie types. One of them regales the crowd with a song. They are all on their way to Amsterdam. Upon arrival, one of them heads straight to the city's answer to Central Park, the Vondelpark, where tribes of kids from Holland and around the world have set up a makeshift village of tents and sleeping bags, sharing joints.
2: Yes. This
4: is the, the famous Vondelpark. What do you think about it?
2: I think it's really nice. There's a lot of young people here. It's amazing. This is right in the city, isn't it? This is right in the middle of the city, yes.
0: In fact, in the early 70s, Amsterdam was such an attraction to the world's hippie types. Airlines marketed flights directly at them. Pan Am's included macrobiotic meals and a live in flight folk singer. Dutch airline KLM ran ads with the slogan Fly KLM, sleep in the Vondel Park.
5: Outside, I want to sleep outside. It's beautiful in the sun to wake up to the sunshine. Do you hear the birds?
0: So when Turkish Delight premiered in Amsterdam at the Tuchinski Movie Palace, just a mile and a half from the Vondelpark, it maybe shouldn't have been a surprise this counterculture love story would get a hero's welcome. But it was. We were stunned when the movie came out. I mean,
3: from day one, we went to the theater for the premiere, and there were, like, lines of people lined up to see the movie, even though it wasn't really sold out. So they were waiting to buy tickets for the next and the next and the next show.
1: I'd never been on a film set. I never had an opening night. And, I mean, the theater was crowded. The film starts. (laughs) And all of a sudden you feel this... People were... The whole audience was holding their breath. You know, it was like... They couldn't, they couldn't believe it.
3: The audience was enjoying every damn moment of the movie, everything. And they were laughing to each other, looking at each other, isn't this, isn't this great? It was the most, uh, probably one of the best experience I ever had in my life.
1: And then at the end of the film, you hear sobbing and people
2: saying, no, no, oh my God, Oh, this is terrible.
1: And I walked out, and there were lots of people congratulating me. And you know, I, I just didn't want to th- what to think.
0: Neither did Paul Verhoeven, who tried not to get his hopes up.
4: It was an enormous applause, and uh, but uh, on the movie I had made before, the people were very happy too at the premiere. Turns out, it wasn't just the premiere.
3: You know, Druszynski, which is the biggest theater in Amsterdam, that was sold out for many, many months. And I kept going to the theater many times afterwards, and we could not believe how successful it was. The lines were still around the block, and that had never
0: happened before in Holland. That scene repeated itself at theaters all over the country. Meanwhile, the soundtrack spent four months in the Dutch Top 50, peaking in the Top 10 just below Pink Floyd's brand-new album, Dark Side of the Moon. For a lot of Dutchmen, Toots Tielman's whistling still evokes Rikerhauer's daredevil bike ride through Amsterdam. And overnight, Monique van de Ven went from complete unknown to national icon.
1: What struck me the most was when I was walking through Amsterdam and I saw outside hairdresser salons, they would put on a sign saying, would you like to have a Monique van de Ven look? or we do Monique van de Van looks, or, you know. So then I thought, this is crazy. People are crazy.
0: The film sold over 3.3 million tickets in Holland, the most ever. It held that record for 25 years, until James Cameron's Titanic barely eked out 3.4 million. It was a big moment for Dutch filmmaking, because not only did no one expect this movie to be a blockbuster, no one expected any Dutch films to be blockbusters. The government mainly funded the dutch film industry and it wasn't a big industry
3: up till then maybe one or two movies a year was ever made in holland so and they were never a big hit so we had an experience of not seeing very many
0: successful dutch movies he's exaggerating actually in the early 70s a whopping five features a year got made but he's right there was no reason to think a dutch film would be a huge hit at least Not a fiction film.
6: You know, feature films were not very, very uh, prominent in the Netherlands before Turkish Delight.
0: Patricia Pisters is a professor of film studies at the University of Amsterdam.
6: Of course they were made, but we were really known as a documentary filmmaking country. And we're still very much renowned uh, for that. And that probably has to do with a Dutch matter-of-factness approach, uh, where... Fantasy and imagination, Mm, it's not really. (laughs) There are no science fiction films, for instance. still not in the Netherlands. Horror genre, just a little bit, not so much. So the documentary school was big and important, but feature films, not so very important.
0: So why did this feature film capture the Dutch imagination? Pister says it wasn't just its ready-made audience of Young Turks. As unhinged as the movie is, it also kind of has that matter-of-fact attitude.
6: I think what is really Dutch about the film, what I do recognize, is a sort of bluntness <laughs> in addressing everything in the open, you know? And, and I think that is quite Dutch. <laughs> yeah, bluntness in the sense that you can just say what you think, whatever happens, you, you, you just say it
0: which of course is what Jan Volkers and his writing were all about. It reminds me actually, and kind of weirdly, of one of my favorite Dutch words. Their version of a donut, a ball of dough fried in oil, is called an olubal, an oil ball. Because why would you call it anything else? Why wouldn't you just say it like it is? Now, This
4: is a most important award, simply because this year's foreign film is eligible for next year's Best Picture Award.
0: Turkish Delight did pretty well overseas. In the U.S. it earned decent reviews, plus an Oscar nomination for Best Foreign Film.
4: Turkish Delight, Netherlands. And the winner is France for Day for Night.
0: And when it lost, it went the way of most foreign film nominees in America, fading into memory and later showing up on the occasional video store wall. In the Netherlands, of course, the movies had a long life, but a complicated one.
5: My name is Dana Linssen, and I'm a film critic for Dutch newspaper NRC Handelsblad.
0: Dana Linson was seven years old when Turkish Delight hit theatres. She didn't get around to seeing it till her early 20s, but she says when she finally did, it felt like she'd seen it already. In Holland, that's how canonized it is.
5: So at that time, there was nothing about the film that I found shocking or extraordinary. It was just a Dutch film.
0: Because it had so seeped into the culture, it was kind of like, oh, well, I've, you know, I've been hearing about this my whole life. But.
5: Definitely. And growing up as a kind of a bookish person, an avid reader, I'd already read the book and I knew of the, the reputation. So it's probably a little bit like growing up in Paris and never seeing the Eiffel Tower, but at the same time, seeing it everywhere and knowing all about it. <laughs>
0: It's the Eiffel Tower of Dutch film. Well, uh,
5: Um, nope. When you say it's the Eiffel Tower of Dutch film, I have to add pun not intended, of course, because otherwise we're going all erotic in the first minutes of our conversation.
0: And while Linsen respects the movie, she actually says its take on eroticism, its sexual politics, are what give her some pause.
5: Because even uh, Jan Wolkers' book is written from such a masculine perspective. And it's really objectifying the female characters in such a way that I think no writer nowadays could get away with. Something in defense of Paul Verhoeven is I think he adds a little irony to it, but still, It's highly problematic the way Eric, when he's mourning Olga at the beginning of the film, is just using all these women to take revenge on her or forget her or get over his grief. And this you can all explain psychologically very well, but the end result is not so pretty.
0: It's not a new criticism. Some feminists picketed the film as soon as it hit theaters back in 73 for these exact reasons. Others actually celebrated it for showing a woman enjoying sex as much as a man without shame. I asked Linson where she thinks modern Dutch viewers land.
5: I've been asking around because I was actually curious. And I've been asking them the questions that I've been asking myself. Like, what about the sexual politics of the film? Is Eric a relatable hero? Is he likable? Because if you grow up with Rutger Hauer in the cinema, you sort of have a crush for life on him. So it's really hard. No, it's it's really hard. And I'm sure there's many American actors that have the same effect on people. You just grow up with them. Rutger Hauer for a while was our only movie star with Monique van der Ven. So do I like it still? Yes. Do I find it problematic? Yes, even more so. Would I... Want to see it again now that we've been talking about it for a while? Yes, of course. But I'm pretty sure that this is not a film that someone would either, well, would want to make or could make. It's definitely not a contemporary film anymore.
0: Monique Ven agrees. Turkish Delight is a movie very much of its time. I don't think it can ever be made again. But she's not talking about its sexual politics so much as its 70s vision for society. One that was shared by the filmmakers and reflected even in the way they made the movie It was a vision of a world that wasn't comfortable or safe but it was without boundaries
1: we will never experience the freedom that we had then to make the film i think whole society the whole society has changed i think uh, we are much more holding in which is really sad you know
0: Turkish Delight isn't quite as life-changing for modern Dutch audiences. It definitely changed the lives of its creators. For Jan de Bont, it was the first step towards the shooting style he'd later use as a DP on American blockbusters, including this one you may have heard of, starring Bruce Willis, Die Hard. The way
3: that was filmed, basically, also very freestyle, and being in the middle of the scene and giving actors incredible amount of freedom. You know what? It is all there in Turks Fire, right?
0: there's no doubt about it. Monique van de Ven also tried to leave to Hollywood, which didn't work out quite as well. But back home in Holland, she started a nineteen eighty-six film that finally did win Best Foreign Film.
1: The winner is the Netherlands or the Assault.
0: And Rucker Hauer, of course, went on to become maybe the most famous Dutch actor on earth, right up until his death in 2019. I asked Van de Ven about her chemistry with him back in 73. What made that spark between them on screen?
1: He was very much in love with his girlfriend then, Ineke, and he stayed in love until he died, you know, for over 50 years. He just adored her. And at his memorial, I said, you know, Rutger was so much in love with Ineke that he projected that love onto me.
0: As for Paul Verhoeven, you know what happened to his career. After a string of Dutch hits, he went on to direct blockbusters like Robocop in the U.S., the Oscar-nominated Elle in France. But for over two decades, starting in 85, he stopped making films in the Netherlands. What happened?
4: All Dutch movies are are subsidized basically by the government for uh, sometimes 50, 60, 70 percent. So you needed that money, and the people that basically distributed the money felt that the movies that I made were so, let's say, uh, uh, public-friendly that it could not be serious. Like, if if you make a successful movie, then it cannot be art.
0: So Verhoeven, the anti-establishment artist, makes a movie about an anti-establishment artist that's such a hit, he's eventually seen as the establishment and can't get films made. Maybe sometimes a cultural phenomenon can leave too much of a mark. And that's the movie podcast for this week. Thanks for joining us for this debut episode. Follow us to catch the rest of this season's deep dives into movies that became part of their home country's canon. We will be tackling one from almost every continent, in fact. Next week, the Bollywood rom-com Indian audiences just can't seem to quit.
4: Everybody knew that this was gonna be massive, but I don't think anyone imagined it would be playing 25 years later.
0: This episode was hosted, written, and cut by me, Rico Cagliano. Jackson Musker is our booking producer. Our engineer was Stephen Colon. Martin Ostwick composed and performed all the music from Garage Rock to Gujong. Special thanks this week to Jonathan Gruber. The show is executive produced by me, along with John F. H. FHECRL, Daniel Kassman, and Michael Taka for MUBI. If you're digging the show, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. It helps get the word out so others can find us. And if you want to tell us personally how great we are, our email is podcast at movie.com. Why, thank you. Of course, for great indie, cult, art house, and classic cinema from every era and around the planet, subscribe to Movie at Movie.com. Till next week, it's a big world. Watch globally.